you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that there is no power of hell that can come close to defeating you uh, and to defeating us through your power. And so I pray this morning as we study again and are amazed again at your beauty and your glory as what was mentioned earlier. God, I pray that we would leave here more in love with you because we understand your love for us. I pray your blessing on the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, where I'll be reading in just a moment. But before I do, uh, I want to take a quick poll. How many of you have ever participated in an escape room? I know the middle school went yesterday, so middle schoolers, escape rooms, okay. Um, Do you know what that is? For those of you that didn't raise your hand, an escape room is... It's a physical adventure game, really, where players are locked in a room and you have to solve a series of puzzles, uh, clues, you complete these challenges, and all with, within a set time limit in order to escape the room. That's where the name comes from. And so the players work together as a team. Uh, they uncover hidden objects, you search through, you decipher codes, you unravel mysteries. Um, they're a lot of fun. And my immediate family got to participate in one of these earlier this year up in Tampa. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We had to, in the escape room that we were in, we had to find four keys, like actual, like these key things, in order to disarm a nuclear device which was going to destroy the world. Yeah, these, this is a, a survival of humanity kinds of things, okay, uh, that we were doing. And we figured out a, a, a good number of the clues. Uh, we made a lot of progress in finding keys, but at one point we got stuck. We could not figure out how to arrange these four cups in a particular order in order to unlock the next round of challenges. And so if you get stuck, at least at, least at this place, you could wave your hand in, in the camera that's in the room. And one of the little workers came in uh, and he said, well, why don't you try this? And he gave us a clue, and voila, it all made sense. It worked, and we began to keep moving, and we were able to complete the task. We were able to find the keys, and you can thank us later that we spared your life from nuclear disaster. Now, in many ways, I suspect that the disciples in this account this morning are feeling a little like we did that day in the escape room. They've been walking with Jesus, they've been hearing Jesus, they've been listening to him teach, uh, and they've been watching him perform miracles, and they're trying to put all these clues together to figure out who is this man. And of course, the crowd, as you remember, had all kinds of guesses. Some of them said, well, this is Elijah. Others said, this is John the Baptist. Some of them thought this was just a prophet that had come back. And at one point, Jesus actually asked them point blank, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's just a few verses in front of what we're going to read this morning. But no sooner... Had Peter said that, that Jesus makes this weird declaration. In verses 21 and 22, he says, I must suffer, I must be rejected and killed, and then on the third day, I'll be raised. Further, he adds, 
In order to be a follower of mine, verses 23 and 20 through 27, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And the disciples are trying to put all of these things together. It's kind of making sense. And at the same time, all of these sayings of Jesus and these actions of Jesus are sort of blurring together. And I suspect that their minds must have been racing. Is this really the Christ? And if so, how do all of these things work together? And so Jesus does something this morning that confirms their faith. He reveals something that's key to them understanding and unlocking the mystery that's unfolding in front of their eyes. So follow along as I read our passage. I'm in Luke 9. I'm going to start in verse 28, and I'm going to read down through verse 36. Here's what Luke records. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James And went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. Luke doesn't use the word transfigure, but if you go read Matthew and Mark's account, they do. This transfiguration does two things. It confirms the faith of the disciples that are there. And number two, it encourages Jesus as he is facing a bitter trial by reminding him of God's constant love. So watch how this unfolds in the text, okay? Look again at verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, and I'm going to pause right there, and I just want to point out something here, because if you read Matthew and Mark's account, they say specifically six days later, Okay, some people will point to those, those two things and say, you know what? See, it's right there. Your Bible has contradictions. Luke said it was about eight days. Matthew and Mark say it's six days. There's a problem. Well, I just want to reassure you that your Bible has zero contradictions. At first glance, it appears sometimes like things like these conflict, but they can be easily reconciled if you understand how the gospel writers write. Matthew and Mark 
are speaking of the intervening days uh, between two events, whereas Luke records the outer two days. He says, including the day when Jesus spoke and including this day of the transfiguration, it was about eight days. Matthew and Mark look at the six in between those two, and they say it was six days. If you don't like that, if that doesn't feel good uh, to you, notice that Luke says it was about eight days, okay? Six is about eight, so don't get tripped up on those kinds of things. Luke here is not trying to focus on the days so much as he's trying to focus on what's happening on this mountaintop experience. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James up on the mountain to pray. Now, the Bible never tells us uh, why these three guys are included, but it seems to be that these are Jesus's three closest friends out of the 12 disciples. It is these same three who accompanied him into the room of Jairus' daughter when Jesus raised her from the dead. And it's these same three that will witness Jesus at his point of deepest agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus pick these three? We don't know. We're not told. But they are getting ready to have one of the most monumental moments of their lifetimes. Look at verse 29 again. It says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What is happening here? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew and Mark used the word transfigure to describe Jesus. Luke simply says that his face was altered. It glowed a brilliant light. The word that's used here of his clothes is a word that describes something that flashes or it gleams like lightning. His face and his clothes became so intensely white that no human could have ever bleached his clothes to ever have gotten them this bright and this white. So what is this? What's what's happening? Well, remember, Jesus is 100% man, but he is also 100% what? God, right? The, when Jesus came to earth, he did not lose any of his divine attributes. They've simply been veiled. They've been covered up when he took on human flesh to come into the world. And so in this moment... Up on this mountaintop, everything that Jesus is on the inside is coming out and is transforming his outward body to reflect the inward reality of who he really is. He's transfiguring. It's a Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. He's literally changing from the inside out. And the full glory of who he is is being revealed. And it's beautiful. And it's stunning. It's overwhelmingly awesome. 
This glory is not only a revelation of who he is, but it's also a foreshadowing of his exaltation from his resurrection all the way to his second coming. This is the king of glory. The one who will eventually take his seat at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are trodden under his feet. This is the king of glory who will return at the end of time to crush Satan and cast him with his demons into the eternal lake of glory. This is the uh, the lake of fire, rather. This is the king of glory who will make a path to redeem his people from their sins. And in the most tremendous display of love ever shown to humanity, this is the king of glory who will go to a cross and rescue his own for himself. You know what's amazing about this metamorphosis? It's the same word that's used in the scripture to describe what's happening in your life as a believer. In Romans chapter 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the word right there. Be transformed, same Greek word, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there it is again, metamorphosized, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As you and I deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him, the Lord transforms us from within so that we are not conformed to the world. And as we behold Jesus in his word, we are transfigured by his spirit from glory to glory. In other words, we are being Sanctified, that's the word that we use. We're being sanctified. We're being changed to become more like this Lord of glory, which is the Father's goal for each one of his children. Jesus, in this passage, was transformed from the inside out to show us who he really is. We are being transformed from the inside out as we follow him to become like him. Now, To be clear, we will not become divine like Jesus. We are not God. But we will bring glory to the Father just like Jesus did when we walk in obedience to him. That's an amazing concept. Jesus is showing us his glory and saying, this is what you're becoming. Now notice there are two other men who show up in this scene. There's a guy named Moses and Elijah. And Luke says in verse 31 that they appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Apparently, Moses and Elijah could be recognized or maybe they were introduced because later when Peter wakes up, he knows who they are because he names them by name. 
But they appear in this passage in glory. In other words, they have left the vicinity of heaven and they have made an appearance with Jesus on this unnamed mountain. And what is it that they're discussing? Well, they're discussing here Jesus's departure, which is about to happen in Jerusalem. You might have a little footnote in your Bible there that indicates the word departure is the same Greek word that means exodus. It means to depart out of something or to leave some place. And I want you to hold on to that for just a moment. It is not insignificant that of all the Old Testament characters, it is Moses and Elijah who appear here. Why? Because these two men represent the beginning and the end of Israel. Moses, as the lawgiver, founded the nation of Israel, and Elijah, the prophet, is to come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord, according to Malachi 4. Moses represented the law and Moses was the great deliverer. Moses was the one who introduced Israel to God on Mount Sinai. Elijah represented the prophets. And in Israel's history, he showed the uniqueness of God above all other gods when he called down fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal were utterly humiliated and ultimately destroyed. These two men represent the greats. There's something else fascinating about these two guys. For all of Moses' leadership, for all of his foundational introductions of Israel to God, he never got to enter the promised land and experience all that God had promised through him. And at the end of his life, in the book of Deuteronomy, he actually recounts to the Israelites, a conversation that he had with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses said to God, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, Israelites, and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. And when Moses died, his body was never found. God himself buried Moses According to Deuteronomy 34, Moses talked about the promised land. He talked about the great coming prophet. Moses led the people all the way to the edge of the promised land. But Moses didn't get to go in. It was left undone. Elijah was the great prophet who 
defeated the prophets of Baal. But then he got scared. And he ran for his life to escape the fury of Queen Jezebel, who threatened to do worse to him than he did to her prophets if she ever caught him. And he ran and he hid. And despite Elijah's understanding of the great power of God, when he was there on the mountain, he was convinced that he and he alone followed God. He felt all alone. He actually told God in 1 Kings chapter 19, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God encouraged Elijah later by revealing to him that there were actually 7,000 others in Israel who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. But when it was time for Elijah to depart the earth, he didn't get to see that plan unfold. He didn't get to see what happened to that remnant and how God would continue to show his power. Elijah never died. But instead, according to 2 Kings 2, Elijah was taken up to heaven on a chariot of fire, being driven by horses of fire, and he was no more, and it was left undone. These two men now appear here with Jesus, and they're discussing the departure, the exodus of Jesus. Both of these men have led an exodus of their own. Moses led the Israelites out of bondage to Egypt, and Elijah had delivered them from bondage to false gods. But Jesus is getting ready to show them something far, far greater. And as he speaks to Moses and Elijah, it was as though he was telling them, Moses, you didn't get to see the plan fulfilled. You didn't get to enter the promised land before you died. And Elijah, you thought that you were all alone. And even though I told you there were 7,000 others, you struggled. Let me show you the rest of the plan. Jesus said, I... I'm getting ready to lead another exodus, one that is infinitely greater than you ever led, Moses. You led them out of Egypt. Elijah, you led them away from false gods. But I am getting ready to leave Jerusalem and I am going to lead an entire world free from sin and death. And when I raise again, and I enter into my exaltation next to the father Moses, I will become the promised land. People will rest in me. In me, they will serve no other gods. In me, the father will receive all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, because I am going to transform my people from the inside out. Can you believe it? Can you comprehend it? 
And I kind of wonder if Moses and Elijah were standing there saying, wow, this is unbelievable. And maybe for the first time, they see the millions and millions who will come under the lordship of Christ. And they see every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping at the throne room of the creator God. And for the first time, they see the fullness of the plan in which they participated, but they never fully grasp. And it all clicks. 1 Corinthians 2 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, behold the glory of Christ. It is magnificent. Peter and his buddies had been sleeping this whole time. And maybe this is the brightness that woke them up. I don't know. Maybe it's the conversation that's happening between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I don't know. But they, they suddenly wake up. And in, 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 in the fogginess of, of just having woke up, they're, they're trying to figure everything out. And Peter, always the one to speak before he thinks, says, Master, it's really good that we're here. Uh, we ought to make a tent. Three of them, in fact, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke throws in this helpful parenthetical comment. He doesn't know what he's saying. Poor guy. I'm sure he had the best of intentions. But I fear that his desire to prolong this glory scene only shows that he hasn't fully taken to heart everything that Jesus has told him yet. And and I just got to remind you and I, as followers of Jesus, Jesus is not, or, or following Jesus is not about memorializing an experience. It's about following him to a cross. One of the criticisms that are leveled against guys like me who preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is that sometimes maybe we peg all of our attention on the cross and we neglect the doctrine of obedience. And while it remains true that our salvation was fully and wholly purchased at the cross by the death of Jesus Christ, we do in fact have the call on our lives now to pick up our cross and follow after him. We are called to deny ourselves. We're called to deny our desires, deny our wants, deny our pleasures. And we are called instead to follow after his desires, after his pleasures, after his wants. We're called to go and obey. We're called to serve Christ by serving others. We are not to just look back at our conversion experience and say, see, Right there, I was saved. Now I can just go on doing whatever it is that I want to do. 
No, 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 not at all. That's what's getting Peter into trouble here. He's wanting to memorialize this amazing experience, but he's ignoring the call that Jesus has just told him about earlier. I don't want you to fall into that trap. How do we know who are Christians today? It's very simple. It is those who obey. That's where your assurance of salvation comes from. You're not going to do that perfectly. There's many, many times you're going to have to repent from your sin. I get that. But a true Christian seeks to obey the commandments of Jesus And when he falls short, he repents, he changes for the glory of Christ, and then he keeps on obeying. It is incredible to me when people come to me and say things like, I know he was, he is a Christian because he was baptized back there at age whatever, 12. And I know, I know, he's living like a heathen today, but I just know he's a Christian because I was there when he got baptized. And sometimes parents and grandparents become fixated on getting their kids baptized as though that is the end all. Listen to me, friends. What is the proof of your salvation? Your obedience. Don't build your tent around your conversion and remain content to live there. Go. Walk in step with the Spirit. Be transformed from one degree of glory to another as you behold the face of Jesus. Obey. Well, before Peter could even finish this thought, he was divinely interrupted. A cloud came and it overshadowed them. Clouds often in the Bible represent the presence of God. And this is no exception. The the cloud enveloped them. Now, grammatically, the them who were enveloped in this cloud could have been all six of the people standing here. But more likely, it refers to Jesus and the heavenly visitors. A voice comes out of the cloud. It's the voice of God. And it says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It is a beautiful identification of the one who has been predicted all the way through the Old Testament. God here is combining three different passages from his Old Testament in describing who this is. The first one comes from Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. There's the son part. Today I've begotten you. In Isaiah, who looked ahead to the coming Christ, Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, there's the chosen, and whom my soul delights, And Moses said way back in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
So God takes all three of these. This is my son. This is the one I've chosen. And you should listen to him. And he combines all of them to describe here who it is that they are seeing. Not only does this confirm the faith of the, of the disciples, this really is the Christ, but I also want you to grasp the encouragement that this must have been to Jesus' heart as he was thinking about what it was going to take for him to depart Jerusalem. As he thought about the suffering, as he thought about the rejection As he thought about the crucifixion, we know that it brought his soul to the point of terror. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And to hear the Father speak to him and remind him from this cloud, you are my son. You are my chosen one. I will love you. I've always loved you. I will continue to love you. What an encouragement that must have been for Jesus to continue his path of obedience. Verse 36 says, When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Love for his father, love for the twelve, And love for all those he came to save prevented him from accompanying Moses and Elijah on their way back to heaven. He stayed to demonstrate to you the fullness of his love. And as we sang this morning, hallelujah, what a savior. The law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. He is the essence and the heart of God's revelation. And at the end of the day, it is Christ alone who stands before you. He is the one who went to the cross to pay for your sin. He is the one who rose again on the third day. And he is the one who ascended to heaven to receive the exaltation that was due to him, and he is the one who continues to demonstrate his love toward you, to save you, to redeem you, and to change you from the inside out to make you like himself. And friend, rest assured, he is the one who will return one day. To him and him alone be all the glory and honor and praise. Behold the glory of Christ. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. God, you are amazing. You are tremendous in allowing your son to transfigure here before these disciples and then recording it for us. We see and are are reassured of who he really is. He's your son. He's the chosen one. He is man, but he is divine. As we see Moses and Elijah, and, and as they begin to see the fullness of the plan unfold, 
They got to participate in it, and now they see, along with us, the beauty of the revelation of Jesus Christ and how you now are saving hundreds and thousands and millions of people for your glory. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we find our promised land, we find our rest. In Jesus we find the power over any other God, the gods of this world, anything else that would rise up against you, we find in Christ the superior one. We see in Christ, in Christ alone, the victory over sin and death at the cross. We see him raising up from the dead and defeating ultimately all things that were uh, set up against you. And now he sits at your right hand, exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We behold his glory. Father, and I pray that the more we look on the face of Jesus, the more we are transformed from the inside out. And that we not rely only on our conversion experience, but that we begin to move with you. We begin to obey you, begin to walk in step with your spirit. And as we do so, you change us over and over again and again until we meet you and are completely transformed into his glory. Thank you for all of these things that you've done for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray.